We're going? All right. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first live in-person Epidemiology Counts podcast recording. Never done this before at SCR, um, but you know what? This is totally different from what we usually do with our Epi Counts podcast. I don't know if any of you have listened to it. Um, you've all listened every to episode, it, of course. Every episode, yeah. There will right. be a quiz. There will be a quiz on episode 33. Um, but for the first time ever, the hosts and guests of this podcast episode are all in the same room. We're all here together in Portland, Oregon for the 2023 Annual Society for Epidemiologic Research SER Conference, as you all know, and everyone who's listening now knows. Yeah. Awesome. And we thought it would be a fun experience to record an episode live and give our listeners a little taste of what happens when you get a bunch of epidemiologists in the same room talking about what really matters to us. I was going to try to do some kind of real world thing there, but there's a real world session actually, so they kind of stole my thunder on that. But <laughs> anyways, um, so I'm one of the hosts of the EpiCounts podcast, um, Brian James from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. And my co-host, Ghassan Hamra, unfortunately could not make it to Portland this year. But I'm delighted to be joined by the hosts of SCR's other official podcast, Serious Epi. We have Matt Fox from Boston University. We need this for all the podcasts. We need an audience. I, ju I just <laughs> want to say, I think it's so great that thousands of people who turned it's out. thousands <laughs> of people in this auditorium. This is crazy. Uh, <laughs> and we also have Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto. <laughs> All right, thank you for joining us, Matt and Haley. So, as I said, today's episode will be very different from our usual format. We're joined by six awesome guest epidemiologists from across the spectrum of career ranks, from student to full professor. And we asked each of them to pick a myth about epidemiology that they want to bust. Just we had to have something to talk about in this live podcast recording. We thought that was a fun idea. Um, and so they all came up with a great variety of myths. Um, like you'll see, it's a substantive epi stuff, and then there's more personal stuff. You'll see. So we're going to talk to each of them for, I'm going to record this for, we have the room passed, like we don't have a cutoff. All right, cool. So I'm going to give everyone 10 minutes so that they can say their spiel. I'll do the timing. And... Uh, and uh, yeah, so we're going to do each guest one at a time. The hosts are going to, we're going to introduce each guest by name. And then the host is going to give you a brief intro as to who they are, their academic level, and one sentence on what they study. And then we're going to ask you about your myth and why you want to bust it. Okay? All right. So first we have Carrie Keys. Thank you, Carrie, for joining All right. So, Carrie, why don't you tell us about the myth that you want to bust and why? Sure. Clock's on. Um, is, it, is this working? Okay. Yes. Um, I'm Carrie Keyes. I'm a professor of epidemiology at Columbia University, and I study psychiatric disorders. And there are so many myths about psychiatric disorders that I truly was difficult to pick even one. So I have kind of three rolled into one. Okay. So the myth that I would like to bust is that psychiatric disorders are rare, lifelong, mm -hmm. and hard to treat. Mm. Um, those, I think many people commonly think that about psychiatric disorders or that someone who has a psychiatric, if, if you have a psychiatric disorder, it's like no one is like me. Yeah. This experience that I'm having is very uncommon. Mm -hmm. But it turns out through a wide range of epidemiological studies, we found out that over the course of human life, most people will experience uh, or meet criteria for a 
clinically significant psychiatric disorder. The most common psychiatric disorders are things like depression and anxiety. Probably most people in this room have had a significant period of depression and anxiety or had someone in your family who's had depression and anxiety. Our estimates indicate that upwards of three quarters or 75% to 80% of people will meet criteria for a DSM diagnosis of a depressive mm. or an anxious disorder at some point in their lives. Mm. So not only are these disorders not uncommon, they are part of the human experience mm. is experiencing these really distressing symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, even disorders that we think of as, as more rare, things like psychosis, um, bipolar disorder are much more common than I think most people realize. Hmm. Um, experiences of psychosis or feeling, um, you know, kind of out-of-body experiences are incredibly common if you ask people in the general population. So all of these disorders are kind of part of the human condition. Hmm. The other part of it is that people think that psychiatric disorders are lifelong. You know, uh, if I if I have this experience once, I'm going to be depressed my whole life, or I'm gonna, I, I'm an anxious person, I'm going to have anxiety my whole life. And it turns out, again, through kind of natural history studies of psychiatric disorders, that for almost all psychiatric disorders that we study, people's symptoms wax and wane. You'll have periods where they're really um, serious. You'll have long periods where you don't have any symptoms at all. Um, again, even disorders like schizophrenia, where people think that these are like lifelong conditions, they can be chronic conditions for some people, but for a lot of people, they'll have periods of time where they have a lot of symptoms of schizophrenia and periods of time where they don't have any. Um, so these disorders are not lifelong. Even things like personality disorders that we really thought for a long time were kind of tra stable traits, yeah. personality traits, turns out they're not really that stable. Um, you'll have periods of time where you have symptoms of some personality disorders and other periods of time where you won't have any. Okay. Finally, sorry if I'm rambling. <laughs> no, no, please. Let's see. That disorders are... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> plenty of time. Plenty of time. <laughs> I think there's this myth that disorders are hard to treat, and I yes. think it stops a lot of people from seeking treatment because yes. they think it's going to be really intense. They think it's going to be really difficult. Um, there are so many reasons that people don't um, want to seek help for their symptoms. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that, again, some disorders are hard to treat, um, and not every disorder, you get it right on your first try. Mm -hmm. um, but these disorders are very treatable. Most psychiatric disorders, you can be treated in an outpatient setting. Even disorders like addiction and other substance use disorders are very treatable um, in an outpatient setting. And so I would encourage anyone who's listening or in the room who's experiencing mm. any of these symptoms to reach out. Yeah, no, these are great. And so can I ask, why do you think this myth persists mm. then? Um, I think there's a lot of stigma about having thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that people don't, they think are perceived as deviant or outside the norm. Um, you know, the, the kind of the definition of these disorders, I think people think that like, if I admit that I'm experiencing these symptoms, people will think differently of me, they'll think less of me, mm -hmm. I'll be embarrassed to tell people that I'm having these symptoms. Um, and I think people don't realize how common it is. Mm -hmm. And once, if, I think people, if they, realized how common it was there would be less embarrassment about saying i'm really struggling right now um and so i think yeah. stigma is probably a big reason and then my other question is do you have you seen any change in this myth over time it feels to me like we are getting better at talking about mental health mm -hmm. but only s there's only been so much improvement so i'm just curious your experience whether you've seen any change in this 
There have been, um, well, I'll, I'll speak to the empiric data <laughs> as an epidemiologist. I mean, why not? There have <laughs> if you yeah, must. Why not? If you must. There have been changes in um, rates of treatment utilization for common disorders like depression and anxiety, and a lot of that, or at least uh, there's some evidence to suggest that some of that is attributable to direct consumer advertising mm. um, from companies that profit off of your mental health. Mm -hmm. um, when we actually have done studies of people's attitudes towards people with mental health um, disorders across a wide range of disorders. These disorders still are incredibly stigmatized. There have been some improvements, especially for common disorders, but not as much as I think people might think. I think people have, again, maybe this is myth within a myth, <laughs> but <laughs> I think there's some people think like, oh, you know, it's okay now to talk about mental health or, you know, like it's okay for people to talk about depression. Yeah. Most people, when you ask them on general population surveys if they want to date someone with depression, if they want someone with okay. depression in their That's families, yeah. um, there still is a lot of desire for social distance mm. for people with psychiatric disorders, and I think that still is resonates in the general population. I guess question? My, my question, yeah, no. Uh, a question on um, your myth and, and the terminology you're using. So I, you use the phrase psychiatric disorders, mm -hmm. uh, which is not psychiatric diseases. And I, I wonder what the terminology disorders, where does that come from and how does it fit within this idea of sorry. Such a good question. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, honestly, that is, I think, one of the um, one of somewhat of a unique feature of psychiatric yeah. epidemiology is that really from the origins of the field, there's been so much debate about what a psychiatric disorder is, how it's defined, what the definition between normal and abnormal human behavior is. And I, I think if you asked 100 psychiatric epidemiologists, they would define disorder in different ways. Generally, we think of it as thoughts, feelings, and behaviors for which there's some internal dysfunction that causes mm -hmm. disruption in social functioning um, or in other domains as well. But it's um, I, the idea that there's binary categories of um, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that if you experience, you know, a, a symptom constellation, you know, have a disorder versus you don't have a disorder. We know that not to be true. Mm. Um, we know that course, yeah. our thoughts, feelings, and behavior exist on a spectrum, a dimension, and that it can really fluctuate even day to day. And so I think even the term psychiatric disorder is itself a little bit problematic. So mm. good question. My question is, so I buy all of those myths need to be busted, but here's, here's the follow-up question to the treatable points. Are they able to be successfully treated? So I, I worry as someone who suffers from anxiety, destigmatizing it right here on the podcast, everybody. Welcome, um, welcome. That, you know, I, I, I do get treated for it and, and that's good, but I wouldn't say it's gone away right. <laughs> by any means. No. And I do sometimes feel um, anxious, no pun intended, that I'm like, is this, is this gonna be with me forever? Like you were saying with the mm -hmm. second myth, even though I'm treating this and it's gotten better, um, there's still bouts that I have. Sure. And, and I'm like, is this ever gonna just go away? Yeah. You know, so. Probably yeah. not, yeah. <laughs> right, I mean. Haley's shaking her head for those who cannot see. I, well, speaking of destigmatizing, I'm also yes. getting treated for anxiety and, and having Well, 75% of the people yeah. in this room so, probably so are. It, you there know, you so go. You, so Thank it, um, you. but 
but no, I, I don't think it goes yeah. away. But uh, but I will let Carrie answer with a more <laughs> academic answer. <laughs> no, treat, treat us right here. <laughs> no, no, this is not intended this is, yeah. as yeah. actually <laughs> medical therapy. advice. And if you are feeling <laughs> symptoms, go speak to someone who knows what they're talking about. Not yeah. fair, fair. Yes. I mean, I think this is another like myth within the myth, and some of it is perpetuated by again a for-profit pharmaceutical company that mm. wants to profit off your mental yeah, health, mm -hmm. the, this idea that, you know, with the right treatment that your symptoms will go Just away. Go Actually, away. what we know from like decades of meta-analyses of things like SSRIs and SNRIs, that the effect sizes are actually quite small. Mm -hmm. um, so managing our mental health, all of it, whether you're high on an anxiety scale, you're high on an externalizing disorder scale, which is my particular <laughs> flavor, <laughs> um, or whatever your flavor is, it's it's not going to be a like one size, I take a pill or I see a therapist and then it's done. It's kind of a lifelong process of learning how to love yourself and engage with mm. the world and find you know people and communities that really engage you as a whole person. Wow. What a great, I think that's probably where we should end this with 15 yes, seconds. Thank you, yeah. Exactly thank 10 you. minutes. Thank you so that much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carrie. That was such a great way to start this off. Uh, next, we have Peter Tennant. Step up to the mic. Can I take your chair? Yes. <laughs> Welcome, Peter. Oh, all right. Welcome, Peter. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're at, you know, uh, your... Yep. Uh, hello. I am Peter Tennant. Uh, I'm an associate professor of something called health data science, whatever that means. Uh, really, it's epidemiology. Um, and uh, my interest broadly is in um, causal inference, causal inference methods, but I also take a personal interest in historical yes. aspects of epidemiology. So that's yeah. a clue. Um, as to the myth that I'm going to talk about. Exactly. I love it. So we have a historical epi myth that needs to be busted. So hit us. What's, what's your myth? Anyway. So my myth, I think, is the one of the greatest stories ever told, yeah. uh, which, is <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is the story surrounding the 1854 um, cholera outbreak around Soho in London, um, and in particular, um, the actions and the, uh, of Jon Snow. Mm -hmm. um, and probably everyone listening to this podcast has some idea of this story. Um, not the Game of Thrones, John Snow. Yeah, not the Game. He wasn't. I, I don't think he was around in 1854. Yes. Um, but no, this was John. This was the John Snow um, who became known. Uh, although his obituary doesn't mention cholera at all, <laughs> um, but he became known really for connecting water and, and cholera. And I'll tell the myth, because the myth is the, the, the sort of uh, the, the story that most people know, which is that there was this horrible outbreak of cholera um, in, uh, around this uh, broad street that had a, a water pump in the middle, and he races to the scene <laughs> of this, this, this outbreak. Um, and depending on the version that you hear and whether you've watched the YouTube video um, of Snow, um, the, the story, um, then, you know, he'll, he'll, he goes around knocking on doors and works out where everyone's dying, plots them on a map, <laughs> realizes they're all around this water pump in the middle. We've got to do something about this. And again, depending on the version you've heard, he either goes and has a chat to the local Paris councillors and says, we've got to do something about this. They don't do anything. He comes in the night smashes the water pump. <laughs> That's the this story. is a better version than I've heard. <laughs> this is we the, need you to tell this is version. Is he wearing a cape? And let's, this just is not, let's not bust this This is one. the this YouTube is, version. Yeah, okay. Was Liam Neeson playing <laughs> John Snow in this? 
Yes. He has a particular uh, in, set of skills. Yes. 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 Um, of course, there are milder versions that are closer to the milder. truth. Um, but uh, most most elements of that story are, uh, are wrong. You know, uh, the final point I should say, of course, he removes the handle, mm -hmm. he saves the day, mm -hmm. ends the the outbreak, and it's considered sort of one of these greatest lessons in in public health action. And it's um, like the birth of modern epidemiology. And the birth of modern epidemiology, the, and the birth of kind of mapping and all the rest Shoe of it. Shoe leather epidemiology. Yeah. Shoe leather yeah. epidemiology. Yes, unfortunately, um, the truth, I think the truth is far, far more interesting um, as ever. There is a tremendous amount of wonderful, rich information underneath what Jon Snow actually did. Um, but coming to the sort of crux of, of the myth. So first of all, the map. He did not draw the map live. Oh. Okay, this is a bit disappointing. He, like... <laughs> Like, as, as soon as the outbreak happened, he was already conducting, so some of you may know the greater piece of work that he did, which was looking at the, the, the um, water distribution um, in the south of London, and there were different areas that were served by different companies that got their, their um, water from different parts of the Thames, and basically said, if you get your water from the more flavorsome part of the Thames, <laughs> then you had a higher rate of cholera, and if you got from the less flavors and parts of the, the Thames, and he got lower rate. So he was busily working on that, but he also wanted any example of cholera, any example. He, and the key is he was desperate to isolate the cholera poison. So mm. as soon as he heard of this outbreak, he, he did race to Soho, but that's because, that because he lived there. <laughs> so actually he kind of walked out the door and went, oh God, there's something going on down here. And he immediately thought, it's that, it's that water pump. This is where everyone's dying. So he, he immediately took samples from the water pump mm. to see what was going on. Mm. Couldn't spot anything. Mm. Bit of a disappointment. Mm. Um, so that's when he instead goes knocking on doors and tries to find out, did you drink, you know, or did your family member drink from that water mm. pump? And he, and he used that to go to the Paris Guardians and say, I think this water pump is a problem. I mm. think we need to remove the handle Got or it. whatever he argued. Right. By the time it was removed, mm. the... The, the outbreak had actually finished. Ah, um, this, is, this is the other tragic <laughs> aspect. Because you imagine you are living in a street, right? And literally in the, in the period of one week, 500 people die. Oh, goodness. Right? Are you going to hang around in that street? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much the whole population had left. Oh. No one was drinking from that water pump anymore because no one was there or alive anymore and he even acknowledges that and you asked me to bring some receipts yeah i did you know. ask for receipts uh, you asked for receipts yes. and i'm trying to open it now um so he says the mortality would undoubtedly have been much greater um had it not been for the flight of the population in less than six days um basically most affected streets were deserted by more than three quarters and then later he said um, there's no doubt that the mortality was much diminished by the flight of the population, uh, but the attacks had so far, so far diminished before the use of the water had stopped that it's impossible to decide whether the well still contained any cholera poison Did by the end. Did you speak to Jon Snow? <laughs> <laughs> I feel yeah. like I spoke to Jon Snow because I have literally on the plane I was reading Jon Snow's ah. um, works at the time. Yes. So, so the the listeners can't can't see this, but Brian is now on the floor in the fetal position. You know what I'm saying? So can you just give everyone your email so they know where to send the hate mail? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I might yeah. give that one a pass. Okay. Fair enough, fair I think enough. it's Brian.J. Yeah. Yes. 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 Under, underscore. <laughs> underscore. Yeah, send it my way. Yeah, uh, sp- particularly for those of us who trained at Hopkins, this is really, um, this is stri- touching a, you know, striking a chord. This was our hero, you know. So can I ask, how many of you, how many of you in the audience have been to see the pump handle in London. Yeah, look at this. Yeah. All, all the pump it's like a mecca handle. for epidemiology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then how many of you went to the pub next door? Yep. For those of you at home, pretty much everyone's raising the their hands. Yeah. What's that? Only went to the pub? Uh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went straight to the There's pub. There's actually a fantastic place, to, uh, chocolate shop next to the pump handle. You got to go there. Oh, I don't know if I want to have chocolate next to the cholera. No, but that was how I tricked my kids into going to see the pump. Okay. So if you go to London, you have to go to the pump. What you may decide to do is also explain to the proprietor. Actually, the removal of the pump handle. If anyone's giving a tour, you should step in. Probably didn't end the outbreak. Yeah, right. That's exactly how often have you done it? That was a perfect impression of me. So in summary, he was kind of right. It's just his action. It was bureaucracy. If he had just rushed and actually chopped that thing down, like the story says he does, he probably could have ended it before. Well, probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, very, so, very so probably. Um, you know, maybe we just embellish it because that's what if you know. But this, this is the other thing: is that, that actually when he published his 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 report, which which contains the map. Mm-hmm. So this was a few months later. He published the report in January 1855. That contains the map where he literally is pretty much see figure one. <laughs> uh, you know, modern epidemiologist. No one believed the report. Wow. Um, this wasn't this wasn't convincing enough. There was some brilliant peer review later that month, um, and it, it depends how much time we've got. We have two minutes. We have two minutes. Shall we I read, read this peer, peer review? Two minutes to read peer <laughs> review. <laughs> because Only it might on be Epi reassuring. Skip, skip to review number <laughs> yeah, two. Yeah, exactly. So this is reviewer two. <laughs> on examining a map given by Dr. Snow, it would clearly appear that the center of the outburst was a spot on Broad Street, close to which is the accused pump, and cases are scattered all round, nearly in a circle, becoming less numerous as the exterior of the circle is approached. This certainly looks like the effect of an atmospheric cause. We observe also there are several other pumps in the mm. neighborhood. And in one of these, the water was notoriously offensive, yet comparatively <laughs> little cholera took place there. Ah. There are indeed so many pumps in this district that whatever the out, wherever the outbreak had taken place, it would probably have had a pump in the center. <laughs> Confounding by to, pump prevalence. To be fair, I've yeah. been described as notoriously offensive too. So <laughs> I don't. I uh, love it. So why? So why do we love this myth? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's, it, uh, I've I been know. reading. I've been reading this because we're heroes. I've been come reading on. this and I've been wondering where these the, these myths have come from. Why they've become so commonly accepted? And I do think it's a, just a nice story of of someone who I read to be a scientist, really interested in trying mm-hmm. to demonstrate. Yeah that cholera is, is transmitted by water, but he does this thing that really catches on in our memory of he acts. The act. You know, and, and then you think, the hero. And that, yes, and he becomes the hero. The hero. Yes. yes. And so we want that hero story. The king in We don't yes. want that, well, actually, this is just one of nine case studies that he presents in his review. Oh. Um, no one was particularly enamored by it until there was later work by the lesser known Reverend Henry Whitehead, mm-hmm. who actually does the investigation mm. and shows, works out who the index case was, works out how the, the leaking had got into the water supply. It wasn't until these, these secondary 
bit mm. part players come in that we've all forgotten in time that the actual real convincing evidence came in. But yeah, we just want a hero. Yeah, we want a yeah. hero. Who doesn't want a hero? Oh, there it is. Oh, the last thing I want to say is I think it's hilarious he had to create a map when there were like 500 deaths. I know. <laughs> like, you really need a map when like 500 people are dying around a circle, you know. <laughs> I probably could have created that map. Data like, visualization. Yeah, I guess so. Yes, fair okay. enough, fair enough. Oof, if only it was one. that easy yeah. for, that was great. That was Thank, you Thank you so you much, Peter. Wow. Wow, these are awesome so far. Okay, next we have Lindsay Russo. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Lindsay. <laughs> All right, my, I got shut out of my computer here, but that's okay. Hi. Tell us a little bit about yourself. As Brian just said, I'm Lindsay Russo. I'm a doctoral student in the Environmental Health Sciences Department at UMass Amherst, studying environmental epidemiology. And um, particularly, I'm looking at ambient air pollution and semen quality in my research right now. And I wanted to thank all of you, Brian, Matt, and Haley, for the opportunity to be part of this Epi Counts podcast. So I've had a lot of time between Epi sessions or SER sessions, and I've been working on this project on the side. Um, it's a research study, and I was just wondering, would any of you want to join my study? Yes. Mm. Oh, do you I need to read the consent. Form. Do you want to hear about it first, uh, or probably, you just say, "No, I'm in." Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sure. Well, right, I'm trying to work with it. the resources that we have. We yeah. have a fitness center. I'm interested in physical activity. As okay. One of my uh, other exposures. I'm interested. Okay. <laughs> okay. So Matt's wearing sneakers. I'm good. <laughs> okay. So I just need you to come in every day uh, for the rest of SER, uh, fill out questionnaires, and run on a treadmill. Fair. Sure. We, as the research team, will take care of the pace of the workout by controlling the dials. So no need to worry about that. Oh, All yeah. we ask. I might have some worry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Just going to get through the consent form. Okay. okay. Right. okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, Don't ask any questions. <laughs> okay. Sorry. All we it's ask fine. is that you raise your hand if you're noticing any kind of severe shortness of breath or dizziness. Mm. Um, but please just don't raise it too high because it might mess up the results of the study. Mm. Other than that, we'll assume you're having fun and doing great. <laughs> and the only caveat to this study is you're not allowed to do any other workouts on your own. So no more SER fun runs, oh, Mount Hood okay. trips, or anything okay like with that. that. Deal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so while this is an exaggerated situation, the study that I just invited Brian, Matt, and Hilly to join, and of course all of you in the audience are welcome as well, um, was reminiscent of the first study I attempted to join. I think I was a junior in college and was looking for an opportunity to learn more about research. As a participant or as a... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was really busy um, as a student on the track team and mm. with my major. And so I thought it would be cool to just be part of a study and observe it from that end. Mm -hmm. But the study I attempted to join gave me a bit of a jaded picture of small studies. Um, with that said, the myth that I would like to bust today is that small studies are not worth conducting. Okay. Mm. Got false. it. False. Oh, all Big right. false. <laughs> so um, as I recall with this study... I don't know if we were paid anything. It wasn't really much help. But um, instead of running on a treadmill, I was just being asked to walk. And there was some kind of metronome that was like telling us what pace to go. Um, but as I mentioned, I was part of the university track team at UMass Amherst at the same time. And they were telling me not to do any other workouts. I could only do their walking workouts for, I think, four weeks. Mm. And there's no way I could skip our team practices mm. during that time. Um, but more than anything, it felt a little bit invasive because I just don't really like to be told what type of workouts not to do. Um, really? No. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, sign me up. I don't have to work out. Sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a little bit of a fanatic. workouts. <laughs> um, so while a, fan a fascinating learning opportunity, getting to study visits across campus, UMass Amherst is pretty big, um, just felt like an inconvenience. And they put the transfer students like at the top of the hill and it's like a 25 minute walk. It's just, it's too much. <laughs> so it was at that point that I crossed kinesiology off my list of potential careers. 
Um, so I would be curious to hear from other SER members who have participated in studies themselves about their first impressions and experiences of those <coughs> of those studies. So um, moving past that experience, <laughs> I took wait, a wait, wait, time out though. Sure. Was that a small study? Uh, I don't even know how many people were in it, but it had to be like 14 <laughs> okay. or less. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Why 14? I, just a number that kind of pops in my head. It was in a basement. I just don't think there were a lot of people that wanted to be part she of it. She wasn't this. the investigator, Haley. She Sorry, was a participant. Yeah, uh, it's, it's vague. I just, I've been to a lot of uh, research day presentations on the kinesiology studies. It's usually an N of 30 or less. That's all okay, I'm saying. All right. um, but you're going to show us why that's important, right? Yeah, okay. yeah definitely. Go for it. Okay, right. okay we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, next I want to move on to uh, an experience that I had working as a research coordinator at the Department of Veterans Affairs, or VA, in West Haven, Connecticut, prior to embarking on my journey as a doctoral student. So um, in that position, I was exposed to plenty of information circulating about a recent pilot study that had been performed looking at smoking cessation counseling in veterans. And so there was only a sample size. I know for sure. I checked the paper. Yeah. Um, there were seven participants in that study. And it's that pilot study provided such valuable information about the feasibility of a large comparative effectiveness trial that we were planning to do of smoking cessation counseling for veterans with chronic pain that we were about to undertake. And I wasn't part of the pilot study myself, but a lot of the research coordinators had been part of it and the physicians on the study. And so it really helped with the logistics of our day-to-day -day as research coordinators. Um, so for example, we sent the participants packages um, of the materials that they would need to be part of the study. And one of the kind of side questions we asked about was how many steps the veterans were taking per week. So they were asked to track their own steps and we gave them pedometers. And I know that we sent them instructions that were pretty clear, but um, a lot of the participants were older and we probably should have done a better job of preparing the materials. And so when they got the pedometers, there was, you know, a bit of confusion with setting up the pedometers to be able to use them. And so we got a lot of phone calls and it was really difficult to explain and get the pedometer to actually work on the other side of things. I don't know. But anyway, we just had to program the pedometers in advance and send them that way going forward. Um, that was something that was learned from the pilot study. And it really helped quite a lot because they that was actually, I would say, the part that the participants uh, mentioned that they liked the most was tracking their steps. But taking that little step that we learned from that very small study to, to help out with um, <coughs> the preparation for them was helpful. Another thing in that study was we took saliva samples for coating measurements of smoking. Um, even if you're exposed to uh, secondhand smoke, that can show up in your saliva samples. Um, I took the test of myself and unfortunately in the VA, smoking was allowed at the time or even around the buildings and you can actually see some measures of that and we had in advance um, there was a connection kind of collaboration idea with the clinic downstairs that when we had participants that needed to have the saliva samples taken we could use a room to be able to take those samples and when it actually came time to do that the clinic was totally um, they were not ready for uh, to be able to accommodate us understandably clinics can get really busy but um, that was something we needed to make sure we had ironed out in advance because it's certainly not something you'd want to do out in public or anything like that the participants deserve their space to to have um, I want to make sure we have time to ask you questions of about this though so okay yeah, are you are you finished with because <laughs> uh, we well, got some I can take a break. questions yeah go for it you can take a break okay cool okay um my question for you is sure. based on all of your experience uh-huh sounds like a very cool study that you were part of but what is the reason that that couldn't have all been done with a larger sample what is it about uh, your your myth that you want to bust is that small samples are not worth it right so 
what is it about that experience that said it was this it was the end of seven that made it special like why couldn't that have been a an end of 700 mm -hmm. doing all the saliva collection the the pedometers you know all of that so, so sure. what's the myth here? That we're because we, we followed the participants forward in time and it was sort of a rolling recruitment, um, we were able to do this much more efficiently with seven participants to be able to get through multiple visits and have data to report back. Hmm. And so is, is, are you saying that we basically we should always be doing pilot studies before we do larger studies? Or are you saying that we can draw sweeping conclusions from studies of seven people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As yeah. I seem to yeah. read in the New York Times all the time. Right? I mean, I don't think that we can seven draw any statistical right. conclusions yeah. from that. It was more just a logistics type of yeah. situation. Yeah. Okay. Can we do this randomized control trial of hundreds of participants that will take a lot of time and burden on the team as gotcha. well as the participants? Yeah. Well, I, think my, my important I, think message. Yeah. I think they're so valuable, small studies, especially as a pilot study for a larger. Mm -hmm. And a, a, on a pragmatic level, it's much easier to get five or ten thousand dollars to do mm -hmm. a, a pilot study, mm -hmm. a seed yes. funding grant, an internal grant, something like that, and use that as a springboard. Right. So uh, you know, for for a larger study. That's exactly. Um, what, yeah. So I think it's actually essential to have mm -hmm. small mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I definitely would, would here's bust through that myth. Here's my follow-up philosophical question. Sure. If we all accept that small studies are worth it, mm -hmm. do we think that they fall within the realm of epidemiology? Yes. Okay, so like, elaborate. Yeah, Hilly. <laughs> elaborate. <laughs> I'm not saying I think the I answer mean, is it, no. <laughs> I would just probing. There's nothing about <laughs> epidemiology that is connected to the size of your, uh, oh, I have a mic, yeah. sorry. But yeah. do you th I think that's a myth. I think that that is a commonly held myth about epidemiology that we that have. We only follow well, that the, the large studies. Yeah, that like we're population based, mm -hmm. so we have to have these large. We we value studies with these huge ends. You know, that the sample sizes are the ones that matter. Um, I'm agreeing that there's a lot I mean, of value there's, in small. There's two separate but, things there, right? Yeah. So. Um, what did you say that we Does it uh, fall value, the realm we value studies that sure if I had money to do this in a million people yeah, 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 yeah sure I would value doing that in a million people right like so but there could be it, it could be a waste of resources as well if could you could be. answer the question with I seven people I mean, you can't answer the question. I, don't think, I think it's <laughs> well, pretty rare that you could answer uh, re really answer your question yeah. with seven people. Yeah, I think I often think of those within like the health services research mm -hmm. but almost mm -hmm. their own kind of category. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if we have time, I'll get it. Sure. Let's part. see. We have 20 seconds. <laughs> oh, no. All right. That was a long anecdote about your, your research. Uh, okay. I'll skip my last study. We can I told you 10 minutes was going to go fast. A future podcast. We'll yes. Future podcast. Yeah. Um, but lastly, I just wanted to say, if anyone is still interested in my treadmill study, please call, text, knock on my door. We probably still need you. All right. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. That was great. Oh, yeah. That's it. Thank you so much. All right, next we have, oh, actually, we're going to do Ari next, if that's okay. And then we're going to do Marcia. Okay. Yes. Come on in, Ari. You don't need to move chairs. You can yeah, just you come sit here. Um, what's he doing? No, Ari, you're oh, up yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> don't leave. Welcome. Please come step up, step up, sit down. Uh, sure. You're in the sure. All right. I can feel Ari's sure. stress. <laughs> yeah, the anxiety <laughs> level just right. I deal with my anxiety by just sweating profusely. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Speaking to the microphone, please, Ari. Okay. Sure. Ari Nandy, please introduce yourself. Hi, Ari Nandy. I'm an epidemiologist at McGill. 
uh, university. Been there for 13 years. Wow, really? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, you just rose his anxiety. I just felt You're that sweating. Old? Just, it just accelerated. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Kelly. Yeah. Well, that means, yeah, anyways, yeah. keep going. It means that. Yeah, yeah, we're both. Yeah, keep going. We're not both. Yeah. <laughs> OLD, yeah. Uh, yes, and I, these days I focus mostly on uh, impact evaluation, trying to evaluate the impact of population level interventions. Yeah. Uh, so, hence, I thought this myth would be relevant to my area, which is. The myth being that yes. policymakers will follow the science or follow the science. <laughs> I love it. This is great. Yeah, so we're taking it beyond the. Wait, the so people, people believe that policymakers will follow the science? <laughs> believe or hope <laughs> before COVID, yeah. we did. In some cases. Right, yeah, right. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Modified Thank by you. COVID. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. Uh, so, where does this myth come from, do you think? Um, because it's it's like just a nice thought to have. Like we've had these, like, <laughs> idealized models of evidence-based policymaking that like there's a DAG with an arrow from like your paper to policy change, and I think we're probably taught that in many cases. And you know, to give you a little bit of a historical perspective, I mean, Peter's not going to be like 175 years in a personal conversation with Jon Snow, but thinking <laughs> 10 to 20 years ago, yep. um, you know, oftentimes you know, the output of our research would be a peer-reviewed publication with some reference to policy at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, thinking 10 years ago, I'm thinking back to the Sandra Glea, former SCR president's mm -hmm. paper in AJE on a call for a more consequentialist epidemiology, yes. um, which was trying to motivate us to ask more policy-relevant questions. And I think we've done that over time. And I think, um, you know, in 2014, that the next year, Sam Harper and I, uh, another colleague at McGill, we looked at the abstracts from SCR from the previous four years, and we classified only about less than 7% of papers as being kind of falling within that category of consequentialist research. So having a direct policy implication mm -hmm. by evaluating a policy reform um, or a potential reform through, say, like mathematical modeling or age-based modeling or something like that. So very low percentage. I bet if we read to that now, it would be higher. Hmm. Maybe like 8%. <laughs> You're so but optimistic. I, yeah, yeah, so. Thank you. Thank you. This was the hopeful part of my, my, uh, <laughs> my myth busting, right? Was that we've made some progress, I yeah. think, in that, in that regard. But to Matt, Matt's question, I, I think it's that, that kind of call for consequentialism, I think, is still predicated on this assumption that when we yeah. create it, yeah. it will be taken up. Yes. Uh -huh. We build it, yeah. they will come. Yes, yes. exactly. But, okay, but so how much of this is all, it, it, it seems to me there's another piece to this, which is we can do epidemiology that is of policy relevance that is consequence, but just because you do a mm -hmm. study, even if you find the absolute right answer, mm -hmm. does not immediately tell you what the policy implication is, because okay. like you could do the study of does eating Pop Rocks and Coke lead to Mikey dying? Uh, presumably people know Who's that. Who's Mikey? Yeah. Yeah, okay. What? what? No, Who Mikey? Nobody knows that one but no. me. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the, yeah. Uh, but but that doesn't necessarily mean we we therefore should go out and ban eating pop rocks and coke because people like <sighs> eating pop rocks and coke, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, doesn't doesn't epidemiology alone epidemiology alone doesn't tell us what to do, and that seems to be a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's the middle ground there, right? Like I think I I definitely see your point that there's many more factors that go into that that decision, right, besides just the scientific evidence. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think I have a quote from uh, Jenny Lewis, the public policy professor, not, not uh, the singer. Oh, uh, yeah, Ryan. I was like, for, um, portion for Fox your mind was going. Yeah, okay. But she said something to the <laughs> Rilo that. Kiley, that's right, yeah. yeah. Oh, Isn't that Jenny okay. Lewis? Anyway, sorry. No. Okay. Yeah, it is, thank you. Uh, All right, that's, that's why we have an audience uh, here. Continuing the All trend right. of obscure references. <laughs> yeah. Got it? It's a different podcast. Okay, sorry. Um, 
smile. But she said something to the effect that um, you know, ev evidence-based policy is a technocratic wish in a political world or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of have this hope that what we create will we'll give the best possible, most rigorous evidence to policymakers, and that's going to inform their decision. Yeah. But like you said, there's many other things that go into that process, uh, including political factors as well. But I still think that we're not quite doing our job. Like mm -hmm. We might be asking mm -hmm. more policy-relevant questions now, but I think we're still not going that additional step to seeing how far it can go. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Is it my job to do that? That's, yeah. that's the question. I, mean, I know that's a whole other myth that, that I think we could talk about, but I, I don't think it is. I don't, I don't think I'm trained for that either. We're definitely not trained for it. I think that's part of the issue, actually. Yes. So um, to counter this, Haley, and I think I, I share this perspective in many ways uh, as a chronic sweater who doesn't really want to speak to people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, like, I just want to publish my paper and get it over with. Um, but actually, to take it even a step lower, like, in many ways, our papers don't even have an influence in the scientific community. Mm. Right? So only about a third of paper, I'll say not only, but about a third of papers in, say, social and uh, kind of uh, biomedical sciences mm -hmm. are never cited at mm. all. Hmm. That's so depressing. And among papers, I feel a lot better about my papers. Well, what a third. Like, <laughs> it's about, like, I just get one or two. Oh, so wow. it's, you should feel good. Okay, okay, yeah. good. Wow. But even among those papers that are citing you, most of those people citing you haven't actually read your paper. Oh, or they're or they're saying that you're wrong. Yeah, oh. or it's your oh. best friend. And I'm citing a paper here. <laughs> or it's you. Without or it's you. I haven't fully read the paper that not said that this. Not that you do that, Matt. Not, not that. We'll do another podcast MP on Fox, H index MP inflation. Fox, yes. Fox. Okay. So that's, there's that. Like I think even within our own scientific world, a lot of our papers are not really influential. Not influential. Yeah. Um, and I think for sure in the policy world, that's that's the case. Yeah. Um, I think you, you have you hit the nail on the head when you said we're not trained to do this. I certainly like people ask me all you know, translational research sounds awesome. Like, you know, how are you gonna take this work that you do on Alzheimer's disease and actually go and and, and uh, you know and change policy so that we can do something? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm just generating the evidence. There's, like there's people that there's someone else that needs to do something. Yeah. With it. Like, hey man, this is right. So but, oh, no, go ahead. Well no, so I'm wondering, so what's the is the solution that we need better training? I, I don't yeah, think that's what's the, the solution? solution. Or is it that we need to be Well, you just led the question. Is that the, is the <laughs> I don't know the solution, actually. You know, that's okay. part of why I want the conversation to be going. I think the solution is not what we're currently doing. Okay. And I don't think the solution is really interrogated by that kind of paper from 10 years ago. Uh -huh. So I think we need to kind of have some new thoughts about this. I mean, if you look at developments in the last five or 10 years, a lot of it's been social media, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking mm -hmm. about new ways of disseminating research. That's certainly getting your, outside yeah, of for academia. better or for worse, right? But are there good examples of it actually having an impact? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, there's probably, again, like uh, in the spirit of the kind of work I do, uh, potential for like evaluation of different types of promoting research to see if they have an impact. But I don't think we know, but that's, we're spending like now a lot of effort on that. Mm -hmm. But of course there's completely different models of say like involving policymakers in the process of defining questions. In my own experience, I think uh, probably I've failed epically in most cases of trying to do that. But there's a few cases where I, I feel like that has been influential, where they're helping to actually define the questions. Uh, and then you have a kind of a partner in the research process. And mm -hmm. it's a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, I don't feel trained for it, and I think that you echoed that. Absolutely. Um, some random person uh, earlier in a session said that we're really good at adding things to the epi curriculum and not so good at removing she them. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, whoever this yeah. random person is. Um, yeah. And, and I, I just don't see how we can do a good job at training yeah. students yeah. Uh, or training myself mm -hmm. uh, to, to do that piece, but I think what we already 
kind of have worked into our curriculum is to teach students how to collaborate with others, mm -hmm. uh, work in team science settings. Even you know, on the doctoral level, you have a committee of folks mm -hmm. that you have to work with and respond to their feedback. And I think that's what we need to be teaching folks to do. Yeah. You know, to seek out others sure. in different areas of expertise because you cannot be an expert in everything. I agree. Uh, so, so I'm curious about this because we, we, I don't think training epidemiologists in in this is is the solution. But it does occur to me we don't even train people in the process of going from evidence to. No. That, that's, what, that's what I was going to say. And maybe right? if we had a better understanding of that, we would at least know what the next steps or are. Or even having it as a goal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, it's how many of us read paper not even thinking yeah. about, like, what's the next steps to take from this? You know, that, that's often not even on, a, on the radar scale. I don't think yeah. that's the goal of every paper. Not every paper. No. Or, you know, I don't, no, I, don't, not, I wouldn't even say it's the goal of the majority of epi papers that get, you know, if you were to look at AJE or epidemiology, um, the papers that were published over the past year, I don't. I don't know how many of them you would say that the uh, the goal would be to impact. But if we're trying policy. to figure out the cause, the causal determinants of health, wouldn't the logical, you know, next step be doing something about those causes? Yeah, but I think your point I, is <laughs> consistent with what Sandra was saying in that paper from 2013. It was not the that every question we asked should take other ideas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no. there's not that like every question should be some policy relevant question, just right. like we should recalibrate because we're, what we're currently doing mm -hmm. is a very low per percentage. Yeah, no, I, yeah. And among those studies, there's very little uptake. And yeah. I see that as a problem. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I, thought, I'm, I'm, I thought that the way you were going to approach this was that um, the myth was that the general public believes that policy follows the science, whereas those of us who actually do the science know that that's totally yeah, maybe not true. <laughs> like, we're not. Maybe. We're like, the veil's off for us, you know. Yeah. Um, before COVID, maybe uh, yeah. felt that way. But yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. not so much now. Not right. yeah. Wow. What do we, what do we got time with? We busted. got 14 seconds. It's okay. Right. The okay. myth is busted. Okay. So, so what I heard was I need to get up to one third of my papers being cited to be at the average? Is that what <laughs> And what they I can't need? be cited by you or your best friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Sorry, All right. Appreciate it. <laughs> okay, right. thank you so Thanks much, Ari. Exactly, Kenneth. Thank you. All right, now Marcia is up. Okay. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Marcia. Thank Please introduce you. yourself and, and tell us about yourself. Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm Marcia Pescador Jimenez. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Epidemiology at Boston University School of Public Health. Go Terriers. Yes. <laughs> What's a terrier? <laughs> it's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for interrupting. No, 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 that's okay. And um, the myth that I'm going to talk about is oh, yeah. managing parenthood in academia. Uh, and I want to clarify yeah, that this, this whole thing started because um, when Brian asked, what do you want to talk about? I, that I only said managing parenthood in academia. And then Brian was very positive and said, okay, so the myth is that that's impossible to do. So you're going to explain how it is possible. I was like, no. The myth is you can actually have kids and do this. Yeah, exactly. That's but hilarious. I think it actually helped me to think about this in a half, um, how is it, the, the glass half? Glass half full, half empty. Like yeah, thank you, yeah, yeah. So okay. you made me think about it in a more glass full kind of way, so I appreciate oh. it. So That's shocking I got you there with my three kids that <laughs> yeah, are yeah, killing yeah. me right now, so, so I'm glad I was able to do that. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. So um, I love you kids, If you're li whenever you listen to this in the future. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start with um, some personal experience. Uh, so I have two daughters and I had my first one when I was a PhD student in my third year. 
my second one when I was in my first year of the postdoc. And I think it was actually a good timing, you know, for me. I was not having um, classes anymore during my PhD, so I was able to, you know, be okay at home with my kiddo. And during the first year of my uh, postdoc, I was not, you know, actively writing grants, etc. Um, so I, I think it was great. I had no, you know, regrets. It was perfect. Uh, but it was, I think that the challenge became when I came back to work and I had an actual human being Ugh. screaming, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, at you home. Kid. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. My research assistant. And then, I right, yeah. right. Um, so I guess that's, that's where everything kind of fell through for me. Um, pumping was something I was not expecting would take that long I thought I would be coming back to work and actually completely like be fully back pumping was like two hours of my day right and then I had to leave early to pick up my kids what my colleagues would stay mm-hmm. with a cup of coffee writing <laughs> papers <laughs> and I would go back change diapers oh, yeah. with Floating their area, yeah. so it was it was fun yeah. times. Yes, that's that's the real talk. That real is talk. The real baby. talk of yeah. what it is like. That yep. that feeling at the end of the day, the rush of like I got to finish my work. I also have to pick up the children. I also have to make dinner and mm-hmm. bed and bath and baseball and ah uh, mm-hmm. exactly yeah yeah I yeah. feel you. So I I feel that nobody told me how hard it was going to yeah. be. So I'm here to tell you all, it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> She's reverting back to the original. <laughs> no, 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 okay. no. But then, so, so this is where I appreciate Brian's help. So, so I'm, I'm gonna talk a little bit about what has helped me okay. um, throughout this. So my oldest is gonna be seven years old. So it took me a long time to get here, <laughs> but you know, I'm getting there. So the first thing that helped me was therapy. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. I think- Taking therapy. it back to the first. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I think I was um, feeling a bit frustrated because I wanted to do it all. I want to publish, I wanted to submit grants, I wanted to be a good mom, a good wife, a good person. Mm -hmm. And it it was just not possible. So talking about it helped me a ton. Uh, That actually leads me to my second thing, which is knowing that we can do it all, but we cannot do it all at the same time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. well said. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's Michelle Obama, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Citation. You didn't have to tell me Thank you, thank you. Um, the third thing that I want to talk about is talking to your partner. Mm-hmm. I feel that I had very unreal expectations of what um, partnership in in parenthood would look like I was expecting like a 50-50 situation mm. that's not the case yeah yeah it's funny to think about that no it was not funny when I was you know not sleeping uh, so it's never gonna be 50-50 it's gonna be maybe 30-70 and maybe I'm doing the 70 for a while and maybe he's doing the 70 for another while and that's okay but actually talking about those expectations also helped me a lot mm-hmm. um, the other is community uh, to actually have a group of friends or colleagues to talk about this. You know, I'm, I'm lucky that I have a wonderful group of, of friends who are at the same level or, you know, assistant professors or postdocs or associate professors. 
that have gone through this and talking to them, you know, like my kid is sick and now I'm supposed to be having five Zoom meetings. How am I going to do that with the, the kid with fever, etc.? Mm -hmm. So, So I think being more clear about what's going on in life while you're still in a Zoom meeting is also very helpful because you'll find that you're not the only one that's going through all of this. Mm -hmm. um, the other, I have other two things. Um, the other two things, um, I guess the next one is um, to look for a place, you know, when you're applying for a job or a postdoc mm -hmm. or even for a PhD. Um, institutions that value uh, work-life oh, yes. balance? Yes, Absolutely. yes, yes. Like who's your mentor and like what's their situation too? Because I think having a mentor that went through this was very helpful because th they, they were understanding, you know? Mm -hmm. and so that was very helpful too. And finally, uh, this is a more practical thing, uh, but it worked out very well for me. That was that I submitted my K before having my kid in my <laughs> postdoc, and it turned out great because it got funded right when I was back at work. Mm. So I had like my own funding, and I was still dealing with everything. So I don't know if I would have been able to submit my first big uh, grant while having a kid. Yeah. Um, so, so submit your grant before having your children. Yeah, <laughs> family <laughs> well, planning. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you can. Um, so, yeah, I think that's all I have. Wow. So, I yeah. welcome any comments, feedback, questions. Well, I can't tell you how much I relate to this issue Agreed. having two twin toddlers that are. Uh, the I mean, the hardest part of it is that, like, it is literally, and it, it sounds so trite, but it's true, it is, like, the greatest thing that ever. I mean, like, I love being a parent. It's my favorite role I've ever had. That's absolute truth. At the same time, I am really struggling <laughs> balancing that and my work, and, and I get wrapped up in both of them. And I want to give each of them 100% of my attention, but you don't have 200% of yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and then, you, and you know, most of us are in working relationships. My wife works as well. She also cares very deeply about her work. So um, exactly what you're saying about expectations with your partner and how to split it. I mean, a lot of, we do a really good job, but it still can be really stressful. Like even me coming to this conference mm -hmm. and being away for four days, uh, you know, I had to come the day it started and leave the day it ended. You know, <laughs> back in the day, I used to come like three days early. You know, check out Portland. I miss doing that. You know, but the reality is, is my wife said, "You you aren't doing that this time. <laughs> 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 the moment that you you're getting back on that plane and you're going to be here by bedtime, um, and that's that's tough. That's really tough to juggle all that, and you feel like the the FOMO can be real." Mm -hmm fear of missing out you know it's like man I really wish I had more time to explore Portland a little bit more but you just can't and um, I don't know that's that's for me I think the hardest part is the is the sacrifice of uh, though something has to go right so if you're gonna work hard and you're gonna parent hard and enjoy both of those the thing that goes is any me time mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. you know, any time to do anything for yourself that's out the window and that's really hard to handle so give us advice healthy. on how to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that that's the other thing that I think I did completely wrong. I forgot about me time. Mm. And for the longest time, you know, I, I recently started doing it again. So now, Lisa Butner, actually, oh. you helped me a lot yeah. for that. Yes. So thank you. Yeah. So, and oh, sorry. I was going to say about, um, about therapy, which I, you know, I can't speak highly enough. But I remember when my kids were little, I was in a session and, and she said, what what are your hobbies? What do you do? And I, I literally had no answer. It's just blank. <laughs> I was yeah. like, well, I work, and then I take care of the kids. I, a hobby? Like, yeah, there's no... But exists. then you have to find ways to integrate that stuff, because otherwise... So 
you know, you just, I, I couldn't do it without finding small slices of me time mm -hmm. uh, amidst the chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're also happier, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So you do your work happier, you parent happier. So it's just better for everyone mm -hmm. involved. Yeah. Do you think that uh, expectations around work-life balance are getting any better or worse? Hmm. Or the same, I guess. Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. Because I've also been through different institutions, yeah. so I don't know how, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And I, I guess the expectations on my work were different because I was at different stages. So I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Fair I think enough. there was some greater understanding that people have lives outside of work during COVID. You know, when a, sure. when a kid would wander into a Zoom meeting or a pet's barking in the background, like it, it became, um, mm -hmm. it, it was always there. People yeah. always had families and yeah. always had lives, but it was really at the forefront during yes. COVID. <gasps> and so oh, um, I think that maybe that helped the conversation move in a, in a more positive direction. That 10 minutes went extremely so fast. fast. <laughs> you have a final, you have a final nope, question? Nope, nope. Wow, thank you so thank much. You. What a great topic. We, we gotta continue that conversation. No, you're gonna, you're, oh, do you wanna, do you wanna have one of these? I wanted to be a little Are you gonna do the little right, TED Talk on. action? No, no, I wanted oh. to just be hands-free. Oh, oh, here, take mine and then um, I can use the. Yeah, okay, we're gonna swap mics. Um, next we have Lisa Bodner. And Let's edit this out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the reality of making a podcast. And actually, Lisa has some audio visual. Yeah, there you go. Uh, is not going to work very well. Yeah, we'll have it's to just explain. Audio yeah, is fine. we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But do you, is there stuff for them to see? Yeah, it'll. Oh. Uh, when I'll you get, get there. there. Okay. <laughs> All right, Lisa, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Lisa Bodner. Uh, I'm a professor of epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh, and um, I study nutrition and pregnancy. Um, and I have a little podcast that's called Shiny Epi People. Uh, it thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, it has 80,000 downloads. Whatever. Whatever. What, in total? Jeez. Yeah, so. I'm going to quit podcasting now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. what's your myth that so, you are going so to bust? So, my myth is that epidemiologists are boring. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I, so, I <laughs> so, <laughs> well, some of us, so uh, I know okay. that, you know, we're running a little late on time. Oh, right. So I didn't even start the timer because you lost There is point. one thing, one piece of evidence that I could show you. Oh, gosh. And oh. I know that this is, wait a um, second. An, uh, uh, wait a second. This is an audio medium. Oh. I understand that. But, um, I think even the audio will help, but for other folks, Who's in this video? Yeah, I was going to say, did we consent to this? Everyone is nervous. Sweaty palms. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you when. This was at um, SER in Minneapolis mm -hmm. in 2019 um, when, you know, all those folks in the room had PhDs. Uh, they, were, they were not boring. Uh, I don't think, maybe uh, Ari Nandy withstanding. Everybody was interesting. I forced him to dance. I got him to dance. Was somewhere. he standing yeah, in the yeah, corner yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. He was, he, see? Yeah. yeah. It's on video, buddy. We can um, zoom in on that. 
So, so none of us, uh, no epidemiologist is boring. I would argue that no one in the world is boring. Um, Matt, boring. You're not. You're not. You're not. Boring, so, I, so I think that boring is not exactly the right word I would use. For me? <laughs> or you're for us? Definitely. We're weird. Not so much boring. Okay. I'll but, take it. Um, I'll take it. <laughs> I would say that uh, there's sort of three domains kind of that I think we're, there's a myth about us. Mm. Um, one is that I think we're robots mm. and epidemiology is our identity. And I don't think that that's true at all. And so I'm, as I go through these three things, I'm just, I'm going to give you some evidence. Uh, and despite the fact that this might sound like this is a biased sample, um, in my experience, I really think that these are generalizable. Um, so I don't know if you guys know some of these folks. They were all on my podcast. But Lauren McCullough, she buys and develops real estate for mostly low-income um, neighborhoods, like a real, a real deal. She really does this. Um, AJ Adkins Jackson is a phenomenal performer and actually talked about leaving epidemiology and performing on Broadway. Wow. Um, Roland Thorpe is a foodie. Yeah, Roland. Ken Rothman is uh, sales. Um, and wait, 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 what? what? <laughs> oh, he's sales. Sales, sales. I'm sorry. Sales and a sales. I'm like, he's in sales? Like, no, 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 that's pretty boring. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> you got to sell the textbook. Sorry, you got to sell modern epi. Okay, yeah. That's true. Good point. He's sales on the, on the Charles, yeah. right? Ah, Charles okay, River okay. in Boston. Uh, Tim Lash performs in a band. I mean, I could go on and on yeah. with examples. So we do way more than epidemiology. Um, and then th that relates to the second component, I think, which is that we're not fun. Um, that video, I think, um, showed you, gave some example of the fact that we are fun folks. But we know that on the podcast, John Pamplin shared that he was on um, an award-winning step team when he was in college, a uh, step dance team. I, I, don't, I think step team is how he calls it. Um, Brandon Marshall, you guys might know, like 9 million R01s. He snowboards. He shreds on a snowboard. <laughs> His words. Um, Leslie McClure, she's a um, phenomenal epidemiologist and biostatistician at Drexel, the chair of that department, and she can burp on command. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, if you guys know Hoda, uh, Hoda Abdel-Majid, she has 12 billion funny stories about things that she has engaged in. Listen to her show, you will, your ep her episode, you will laugh and laugh and laugh. Um, and then Matt Fox here, mm, he has very strong opinions on if he were to sleep on sheets, bed sheets made oh. of deli meats. Oh, I I we're I bringing this up again. I don't feel those are strong opinions. They are facts. facts. <laughs> there is a right answer. Yeah, and what was your answer? Well, there are certain things that are like sweaty when it comes to deli meats <laughs> that you don't want to use as a bed sheet. That's, that's just, I mean, that's just science. Okay. Okay. So yeah. what's the best bet? What's the best? Well, I would go turkey, turkey. personally. Turkey, 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 turkey yeah, it's dry. The it's threat count is horrible for yeah, turkey. Fair enough. Fair okay. enough. Anyway, Swiss <laughs> breathes, but it gets sweaty. Yes, okay. cheese gets yeah. sweaty. But that's what the holes are for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Salami, greasy. You wake up. Oh my God! This podcast is getting away from us. All right. Okay. So the last, the last kind of component of this is that that we are not emotional beings mm. that we go through life um, being successful 
and have no barriers in front of us and that um, and that perpetuates because that's what we show of mm. ourselves we come to this conference and look like we're totally put together mm. um, and <laughs> I'm barely so hanging on a few examples of that um, Will Goodell who's here at this meeting has talked about challenges um, with his experience as an LGBTQ faculty. Um, Nurzina Mar is has talked about feeling um, insecure and unwelcome as a Muslim American in academia. Um, Bill Miller, which a lot of who a lot of you guys know, has talked really openly about having imposter syndrome, which you know you think is bananas because like he is yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and having ADHD. Um, Whitney Robinson, most of you guys know Whitney, she has talked very openly about how hard she finds it to raise a son to become a strong, sensitive, and safe uh, black man, to, to raise a son to be um, in our country. Um, so we are not any of those, we're not, we're not unemotional, we're not unfun, we're not boring. Um, we're just like everybody else. Uh, yeah. yeah. Go us. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, I've told you this before, Lisa, but I'm, I just, I really appreciate your podcast you. because we have these, uh, we did a joint podcast recording. Um, what was it? Like a year or two ago? Oh, it was, probably, I think it was it like was two or three years. It was years. during COVID. Yeah. It was during COVID mm -hmm. where we kind of got all the epi podcasts together and we talked about the different angles we have, um, so, you know, and what sticks out is like really different is Lisa's because she's like, let's take the actual people that are doing this work and talk about, talk to them and about them and with them as the actual human beings that they are. And um, I, I have to say, uh, this myth got busted for me. I mean, I never thought we were boring. I just didn't think we would be that exciting <laughs> on a podcast <laughs> format. Here I am hosting a podcast. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, uh, but re yeah, I mean, every time I listen to your, your guests, or I, I find I learn something yeah. I had no idea about. And we all have something like that, you know, so. Yeah, and really I think cool. that being able to identify with one another mm -hmm. um, is really the, what I've, what I've gotten out of this mm -hmm. and what a lot of people have gotten out of this is like I'm not alone in mm -hmm. you know my feelings of whatever X Y or Z struggles and um, and successes too and mm -hmm. kind of overcoming problems so that's something that I've gotten out of it is mm -hmm. that we have so many similarities even mm -hmm. though we're very different there's so we have so much in common uh, so when is the when is the next episode yeah. coming out? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So the uh, it's been a year since I've put out episodes, oh. but if you've never listened or you want to listen again, there are something like sixty plus episodes out there. So um, there's a lot of content. I'm looking for someone to pay for my uh, show so yeah. that I can have more time to focus on the interviews and less on the editing. You put a lot of editing work into it. a lot it. of editing. Epi so counts barely guys. edited, I have to say. We yeah. just like, whatever you say, it's on tape. <laughs> if you make a mistake, we'll go back, cut a few things, but right. you know. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know, I don't know. Hearing from folks who are interested in the show certainly helps uh, get me motivated again. Send, send, send messages mm -hmm. encouraging yeah, yes. more episodes. We need more. Because we need that. We yes. need that, we, yes. we need more of that. And we need more you know, people who are, are talking about what epidemiologists are really like, because yeah. 
I did not. I mean, it, I learned things about people mm-hmm. on your podcast, people that I knew but didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I mean. Sad I, about them. Right. Yeah. 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 And so it was. it's really fun, and I hope that you will do more of those. Thank you. Okay. And we need more Bodner parties. I know. I mean, we got to do that again. Yeah. I want to. Do we have time for. Yeah. What's our time at? We, we got a minute. Let's do it. This is the last right. one. <laughs> I want to add uh, add on to your myth, which is that epidemiologists are like a super hyper competitive, oh, yeah, not one. communal mm-hmm. group of people. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a myth that needs to be busted, especially for the junior folks, the trainees, the students that are here. Everyone is so welcoming and friendly. And I know it's it's really hard to start those conversations and to approach someone in that way. Um, but everyone is so helpful. You see someone, you've read their work a hundred times and you see them in person and want to work with them. You know, keep this going, is a, this is a group of people that I think that's, you know, related to humanizing them is that people are really nice at this mm, meeting. That is and, so true. you know, I think yeah. that, that, this myth that we're not Carrie. Not Carrie. She's scowling in the corner. Please, police. Yeah. Jokes, jokes, just joking, joking. Yeah, just especially to her, and especially to Ari. Loves talking to people. Everyone approach Ari after this. Come up with questions for Ari. He's gone. So thank you for all that you've done to humanize our our group, because I think it's it's really important work. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks. Wow, what a great feel-good way to end this. I want to thank everybody in this room. This is amazing. I really didn't think we were going to have a room that could have an audience, and it's so cool that you all turned up for this. This worked great. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. I want to let me wrap this up. And thanks to everybody who contributed. Thank you to everyone who contributed. That's what I was about to say. I was going to thank Haley and Matt and all all of the contributors. Sue Bevan for producing this podcast and for putting SCR together. Just amazing the work she does. Uh, but again, I want to reiterate, the point of this episode is that hopefully we'll get other SCR members interested in the podcast, not just listening to it, but joining the podcast committee. Um, we are always looking for, and to be on the podcast committee, all, all we need you to do is come up with like a topic and an expert, send them my way, I can do the rest. But, but I'm running out of ideas. <laughs> We've done 40 episodes, I need someone other than me and Gassan coming up with ideas. So. Um, But if you're interested in joining the podcast subcommittee of the Scientific Dissemination Committee, then you can contact me or Ghassan or Nicole Austin or Laura Balzer, who are all the three co-chairs of the committee. Um, You can find their contact info on the committee webpage of the SCR website. Uh, You can also, as I always say, find awesome learning materials, seminars, and activities on epiresearch.org. And if you're listening out there and you're an epidemiologist who has not joined the Society for Epidemiologic Research, come on, after listening to this, how could you not want to be a part of this? Yeah. I mean, come on. Um, And if you haven't attended an SER conference, we're really hoping this episode has piqued your interest. Um, And the final quick statement I always have to make is that the views expressed in this podcast by both the hosts and any of our guests, especially Erin Nandy, are ours and their views alone and do not necessarily (laughs) represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. So thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back with another of our normal format uh, EpiCounts episodes soon. Thanks. Thanks.